hands for burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. Let's pray and ask God's help. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your perfect words. We pray that you would um, speak now through me, that you would help me to speak clearly and faithfully. In Christ's name, amen. Is it worth it? It's a question that we often ask, don't we? But it's a question that we ask every day. Is it worth it? Whether we are thinking of buying a car or buying a new house or doing a university degree or another professional course, we ask ourselves, is it worth it? Am I, what am I getting for my money? Is it a good use of my money or my time? Could I find a better use for my money somewhere else? Should I buy something else? Is it worth it? It's a question that we ask very often in life. And this passage of Scripture tonight prompts us to ask the same question regarding the Christian life. Is it worth it? Is it worth it to follow the Lord Jesus, to believe in Him? How precious is He? How much time, how much effort should we dedicate to the church, to the Lord Jesus? How important is my faith? This is a striking story which comes at the end of Christ's ministry. It's quite unexpected. It happens out of the blue. And it's quite clear that Mark wants to make a point with that story. And it's clear because actually the narrative would flow very well or even better without the story. Look at verse 1 with me. See, in verse 1, he talks about the chief priests. The chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him, for they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And then verse 10, then Judah Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priest in order to betray him. You see, the story would flow very well without that story in the middle. And so clearly, Mark had put that story in the middle because he wants to make a point he wants us to see the contrast between two attitudes, between those who love Jesus and between those who hate Jesus. And of course, putting that story there brings in sharp relief the love that this woman has for the Lord Jesus. Another thing to note before we dive into the story in more detail. Have you noticed that the, the woman is not named? We don't know her name. What she did is extraordinary, it's memorable, but we don't know who she is. And I think, again, Mark is making a point here. The, the point is that the focus of the story is Christ, not the woman. We're not meant to admire her, although we, we do that as well. We are meant to ask ourselves, what is the significance of our action? What is the significance of our action? What does it mean for the Lord Jesus and for ourselves? And that's the question I would like to ask tonight briefly. What is the significance of that woman's action? And I've come up with three adjectives to describe what she did, um, which will help us going through the story. What she did was extravagant, embarrassing, and prophetic. 
So number one, how extravagant. Verses one to three. Look at verse three in particular. The Lord Jesus is at Bethany, reclining in the house of Simon, and there she comes. And she comes with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard that she breaks and pours on the Lord. Now, the details are not entirely clear. We don't exactly know what that perfume was, what it was used for. I'm not going to go into details. There's, um, there's an article in Wikipedia on alabaster that you can go and read if you want later. But I think we understand the point, don't we? The point is that this perfume was very, very, very expensive. I think Mark is clear. An ointment of pure nard, very costly. And we are told later that this ointment was worth about 300 denarii. Well, 300 denarii doesn't really mean much to us, but we know that one denarius was the, the, a daily, the average uh, salary from one day's work. So 300 denarii would be something like the, uh, a year's salary for a laborer. Not quite sure what the average salary is in the UK at the moment. I think it's something like £28,000, if I'm not wrong. So think about a £28,000 bottle of perfume poured on the Lord Jesus. It was probably an heirloom, something kept for a dowry. And it's something that had to be used once and for all. Do you see that? The, the, the jar gets broken. You can't keep anything. Either you break it or you don't. And once it's broken, you have to spend it all. So the obvious question is, why did she do that? And there are several ways of answering the question, but the, the main answer is quite simple, isn't it? She did that because she loved the Lord Jesus so much. She loved the Lord with the love that the, the disciples should have loved him and didn't. And she understood something very, very simple, very profound. She understood that Christ is priceless. Christ is priceless. He's worth everything. He's worth everything we have to give. And he expects everything from us. Not just a part of us. He expects everything. Our relationship with Christ is worth sacrificing everything. That jar of ointment was like a, a big saving on a saving account, which is spent once and for all and doesn't come back. You don't get that money back anymore. So the obvious question for us is, do we love the Lord Jesus like this? Now, you may think maybe it's not an entirely fair question because we're not there with him. That, that woman knew the Lord Jesus. She was there with him physically. But you remember what Peter says in his first letter, in the first chapter. He says, though you have not seen him, what? You love him. Though you don't now see him, you rejoice with joys inexpressible. So how should our love for Christ manifest itself if we think about what that woman has done? So clearly we haven't got Jesus with us. We can't pour anything on the Lord Jesus. So how can we manifest our love for him? Well, for our persecuted brothers and sisters, this is a very easy question because when they come to Christ, they often lose everything, don't they? They lose their family, they lose their money, they lose their job. But what about us? Following Jesus, does it mean losing everything? I think there are two ways we can show our love for the Lord Jesus. First of all is what we sacrifice for him. 
Our love is shown by what we sacrifice for him. Have you ever sacrificed anything for the Lord Jesus? Have you ever sacrificed money, time, opportunities? Or maybe I could put the question differently. Would you be better off now in your life if you were not a Christian? This is a question I've asked myself sometimes. I think it's a very interesting question. If I were not a Christian now, would I be better off financially? Would I have a better job? Maybe I would have been able to make some choices that I couldn't make as a Christian or take advantage of certain situations. What have I sacrificed? What have you sacrificed for the Lord to follow him? So what we sacrifice for him, and the, the other way we can show our love for him is by speaking about him. How, how keen are you to talk about the Lord Jesus to other people? Again, it's very simple, but it, it's so revealing. When, we, when we're excited about something, we talk about it. Have you noticed when, when people see celebrities somewhere in London, they tell their friends, they tell everybody. Even if you're not interested, they tell you that they've seen that celebrity. I've got a lady in a, in a church in Brentford who loves collecting autographs from celebrities, especially from British TV and theatre. And she always comes up to me to show me the autograph. And I don't give her any satisfaction because I don't know these people. Um, but even last week, she came with her phone and she says, look, this is me with Amanda Holden. And I said, who's Amanda Holden? <laughs> and she said, come on, Amanda Holden. I said, I've never heard that name before. I'm sorry, no idea who she is. But she was all excited. You see, why is it not the same with us as Christians? Look, I've, I've met Jesus. I know Jesus. Who's Jesus? Well, let me tell you about it. Come to church. I'm all excited about it. Come and meet Jesus. Come and hear. How much do we love Christ? You see, I think one of the, one of the factors that have been the downfall of Christianity in our Western world are nominal Christians. Nominal Christians. People who come to church... They talk like Christian, um, they look like Christian, they live decent life, but they don't really love the Lord. They don't really love the Lord. They come to church, but there's nothing, nothing more than that. Nominal Christians. And in a way, we can see nominal Christians at work in the story here. This is the, the second point. How embarrassing. Verses 4 and 5. Look at verse 4 and 5 with me. There were people who were not pleased at all with what the woman did. She got scolded. Verse 4. Why did she do that? Why was the ointment wasted like that? She gets scolded. She was rebuked. And I think part of the reason why is that her action rebuked them. I think it's often the case that if you're a Christian, if you love the Lord, you rebuke people by your attitudes. Have you noticed that sometimes? I've noticed that at the, in the workplace. I remember when I was still in the workplace. People knew I was a Christian. And sometimes I was not saying anything. I was not preaching a sermon. But people were annoyed because I rebuked them by doing or not doing certain things. And I think these people feel rebuked because they don't love the Lord like her. And what she's done is incomprehensible. And of course, they take the, the high moral ground, verse 5. This ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. What a ridiculous thing to do. Look, you could have done something sensible and Christian with that ointment. You could have sold it and given it to the poor. You know, come think of a more 
Christian thing to do than this. What a waste. But the, the most striking thing for me in what they say is precisely this idea of waste. What a waste. What a waste. Well, let's think about it. Is it a waste to throw a 28,000-pound bottle of perfume on someone? Well, probably, yes, it is, unless that person is God in the flesh. In that case, it's not a waste anymore, is it? These people can't see that Christ is God in the flesh. He is the Lord himself. He demands everything from us, and he can transform our life. He's worth everything. These people scolding the woman remind me of um, religious people who tell you sometimes, don't get too enthusiastic with these things. I don't know whether you've, you've heard people say that to you. Um, I have. I remember when I, when I became a Christian, um, I was taking these things too seriously. I was told, don't get too enthusiastic. You know, I'm glad you're a Christian. If you're happy with that, if it helps you, but you, get, you take these things too seriously. Or on Sunday afternoon, they ask you, where are you going? I'm going to church. They're, Why? You've already been this morning. Oh, yes, but I want to go again in the afternoon. No, you take these things too seriously. This is how these people think. And you see the parallel with Judas in verses 10 to 11. Judas talked to the chief priest and he agreed to betray Jesus for a few silver coins. We know from Matthew that he agreed 30 silver coins. A jar of unbelievably expensive perfume on the one hand. 30 silver coins on the other. You see, have you ever thought about that, that Judas sold Christ for 30 silver coins? Basically, the, the Jewish leaders and Judah don't think the Lord is worth very much. They didn't think Jesus was worth very much. 30 silver coins were enough. And sadly, those people who rebuked that woman um, think the same. They don't think Jesus is worth very much. 30 silver coin, maybe but not more than that. What a rebuke for these people, and maybe some of the disciples were with her, to be associated in Mark's gospel with Judas and the chief priest. They agree on one thing. Jesus is not worth very much. So let me ask you again, how precious is Jesus to you? How precious he is as a person, as a saviour? As you know, in the West, going to church is not costly. It doesn't cost us anything to come to church. But following Christ is costly, or at least it should be. Following Christ, it's costly. And if you're, if you're a Christian now, and if you look back, maybe some of us, some of you, I know, have been Christian for years, when you look back and you ask yourself the question, was it worth it? Was it worth it to be a Christian? Well, the answer is, he is worth it. He is worth it. It was not a waste to follow Christ. It was a shrewd investment for the future. And that's what we see in Christ's response to these people defending the woman. This is the, the third point. How prophetic, how prophetic, verses 6 to 9. The Lord Jesus defends that woman, he says, leave her alone. And then he praises her. And she says quite wonderful things to that woman. He says, she has done a beautiful thing. And then he says two things in particular 
which I love. First one, verse 8. She has done what she could. She has done what she could. I think this has become my favorite saying of the Lord Jesus. I mean, the Lord Jesus says a lot of very wonderful and important things in the four Gospels, but my favorite one is this. She has done what she could. And I don't know about you, but my ambition in life is this, that one day when the Lord Jesus comes back, he will tell me, you have done what you could. That he won't tell me you were wonderful, you were super amazing, but you have done what you could. What a wonderful thing to hear the Lord Jesus say that to you, whatever your circumstances are, whatever your trials are. And then he says another striking thing. He says, she has anointed me for my burial. So the Lord Jesus is saying there is a prophetic dimension to what she has done. There is a, a prophetic, theological dimension to what she has done. Did she understand that? Did she understand that there was a prophetic dimension to that? I've read a few commentaries, and um, most of them say, no, probably not. No, there's no way she could know that. Well, I disagree. I'm pretty sure she knew. Um, the Holy Spirit could very easily inspire her, just like the thief on the cross. Think about all the things that he knew. And if she was following Christ, she would have heard him several times, uh, predicting his death. The Lord Jesus several times said, I'm going to die and rise again. And also think about it. Why sacrifice all this perfume if he was going to be around forever? That would be silly, wouldn't it? Why sacrifice all this perfume if Jesus was going to be around for the next 20 years? So she probably knew he was going to die because she, she listened to him and she could see all the people who hated him. And the Lord Jesus knew he was going to die and he knew he was hated. You see in verse 7, it's interesting what he says to these people. He said, you will always have the poor with you and whatever you can, you can do good to them, but you will not always have me. The Lord is not disparaging the poor when he says that. What I think the Lord is saying is, I am the ultimate poor. You want to help the poor? Well, look at me. I am the ultimate poor. I am the man who is despised, forsaken, abandoned by everybody. In fact, if you glance over further down in the chapter, 14, verse 50, and they all left him and fled. You want to help the poor? You want to help people who are in need? Well, look at me. I am the poor with a capital P. I am the man who is despised, forsaken. Do you feel lonely sometimes? Do you struggle to be a Christian? Maybe at work, you're the only Christian. Well, remember, your Lord Jesus knows what it is to be alone and forsaken. And they all left him and fled. This is what he endured for us. He didn't have to do that, but that's what he did for us because he loved us. But don't miss the, the, the statement in verses 8 and 9. Jesus says something quite paradoxical and quite wonderful, which gives us a lot of uh, assurance. You see, on the one hand, he says, you will not always have me, and she has anointed me for my burial. In other words, I'm going to die. I'm not going to be around for very much longer. But then in verse 9, he says, what she has done will be proclaimed wherever the gospel is proclaimed. What gospel? Well, the gospel of his resurrection, of course. Otherwise, there's no gospel. 
So the Lord Jesus is effectively saying, she has anointed me for my burial, I'm going to die, but I'm going to rise again because there's going to be a gospel to preach. And wherever the gospel is preached, what she has done will be remembered. In John 10, 17, the Lord Jesus says, for this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay down of my own accord. I have authority to lay down. In other words, I die whenever I want. And I have authority to take it up again. In other words, I have authority to rise from the dead whenever I want. So thanks to that woman, we have another wonderful statement from the Lord Jesus. He knew that death could not hold him back. And there would be a gospel to proclaim. And 2,000 years later, here you are, here we are here, hearing about that wonderful gospel and what that woman did for the Lord Jesus. So let me ask you again one more time. If you're a Christian, is Christ your all in all? Is he precious to you? Is he your life investment? Is he your pension for eternity? You see, when immature Christians often say things like, is it a sin if I do this? I've thought like that sometimes when I was an immature Christian. Is it a sin if I do this? Can the Lord forgive me if I do that? Can Jesus cut me a bit of slack if I do this? You see, the way, we, the way Christians think sometimes when they're not mature, they think, yes, I, I'm glad to be a Christian, but I would also like to do this or be more like that. But mature Christians turn things around and they say, is it the best thing to do? Am I putting Christ first? Am I putting the church first in my decisions, in what I choose to do in life? And if you're not a Christian, maybe you're not a Christian tonight, not yet, maybe you're thinking about it, may I ask you, why not? Why are you not a Christian? It may be that you, you find the gospel attractive you find Jesus attractive, maybe intellectually compelling, but you're struggling with the idea of surrendering, surrendering yourself to Christ. Because you know, you feel, you, you sense that if you become a Christian, there are certain things you'll have to stop doing, or you will have to change the way you live, and you don't want to do that. Well, if it's the case with you, I can tell you, you're in good company because that's how Christians have felt throughout the centuries. Probably the greatest uh, theologian in church history, Augustine of Hippo, writes in his confession that he struggled to become a Christian. He was converted in his mid-30s, and his main struggle was that. He did not want to give up on his sexual freedom. And at some point, he was intellectually convinced of the truth of the gospel, but he did not want to surrender. But once he found the Lord Jesus, he did not regret these things anymore. He did not. Another church father writing 1,800 years ago, Tertullian, says this, the only shame or regret the Christians feel is that not having been a Christian earlier. If you're not sure you want to follow Jesus, ask people who've been a Christian for many years. Ask them if they regret it, and you will see that they don't, because Christ is worth everything. 
Let me just conclude by saying this. One day, there will be a last day. One day, the Lord Jesus will come back, and each one of us will have to appear in front of the Lord Jesus. This will be a memorable day. There will be much joy and much sadness on that day. And on that day, each and every one of us will hear one of two things. Either we will hear, what a waste, what a waste. You have wasted your life on things which were not worthy of anything. You have loved things which were never going to last forever. What a waste of life. I'm sorry for you. Or you will hear, you have done a beautiful thing. You have done what you could. Welcome, faithful servant. Is it worth it? He is worth it. Let's pray.